Welcome to Medicine Matters, the Springer Medicine Podcast. In this episode, we're discussing the potential use of AI as a tool for predicting clinical outcomes in stroke. As our listeners will be all too aware, it can feel a little like every clinical specialty is currently exploring the potential for artificial intelligence to help improve patient care with, let's say, varying levels of optimism and expectation. Stroke medicine, though, presents a particular challenge because every stroke is unique. So while some wonderful advances have been made in terms of expediting diagnoses of stroke thanks to AI, it remains incredibly difficult to be able to give patients any informed prediction of their prognosis. If experts were able to use AI to help predict these clinical outcomes after stroke, patient care would be significantly improved. So here today, Katrina Brown explores the latest advances towards that goal with Professor Suzanne Wegner. Hello, I'm Katrina Brown, Clinical Content Manager at SpringerMedicine.com. I'm delighted to be joined today by Professor Suzanne Wegner, who's a stroke neurologist at the University Hospital Zurich and a stroke researcher on translational stroke research at the University of Zurich. We're going to explore her team's work on the use of artificial intelligence to predict clinical outcomes after stroke. Welcome, Suzanne. Thank you, Katrina. (laughs) Before we dive into the topic, please, can you tell our listeners a bit more about yourself? Yeah, so as you said, I'm a neurologist, so I work at the University Hospital Zurich. I see patients, I see neurology patients, but my focus is definitely on stroke. So I see patients in the acute phase of stroke, but also when they come back after stroke to our outpatient unit where we discuss how they're doing, what the cause of the stroke was. And um, I'm also specialized in headaches. So this is kind of my my focus points. And when I don't see patients, I have a research group, which is doing research in uh, translational models of stroke, where we try to evaluate how we can improve stroke treatments and also in clinical projects. And I think this is what we will talk about today. Thank you. Yes, I'm keen to discuss with you the recent findings of your research on the use of AI. But first, please, can you tell our listeners why is being able to predict clinical outcomes after stroke so important? It is important because we still uh, do not achieve the perfect outcome for everyone yet. So although we have improved our treatments really dramatically over the last 10, 20 years, particularly with thrombectomy, thrombolysis being faster and faster and more and more improved, we still have about 50% of patients, particularly with large vessel occlusions. So those where like really a big vessel is affected and a large area of the brain is affected that don't reach a good outcome. So they are not able to live independently. They really still suffer, um, yeah, suffer disability from the stroke. And this is why we need to get better And we need to understand who will benefit from treatments and who does not benefit from treatments. And also, if we develop new treatments to further improve what we can do for patients, knowing the outcome is going to help us to know who we should treat and who we should not treat with these new treatments. Mm. So in your research, you use the terms functional outcome and functional recovery. What does that look like for patients? Yeah, I mean, functional recovery and outcome is obviously something very individual, so it's difficult to say what it means for for each patient. But uh, in stroke, what we usually do is we we, um, use a very simple scale to 
stratify how well patients have recovered in, into their daily lives. And we use the so-called modified Rankin scale, which is a, just as it goes from zero to six. Zero meaning the patient has no consequences of stroke at all. One meaning there may be a residual symptom, such as tingling on the hand, which does not affect any of the daily activities. Two meaning it does affect a little bit daily activities. And then the further you go, the more affected the person is. So someone with a modified Rankin scale of four is not able to walk herself. Modified Rankin scale of five means you are bedridden and you need continuous support. And six means you have died. So anything from four and up is definitely something we consider an unfavorable outcome. And of course, you can discuss if a Rankin scale of three or two is unfavorable outcome too. But this is a very simplified way of how we judge functional disability in most stroke trials. But I'm obviously aware this is very, very simplified. And this could be one of the reasons we are having difficulties with outcome prediction. Okay, so how are the predictions currently made and how do you see AI playing a role in the future? So at the moment, we really go a lot by our gut feeling. We have, of course, a few indicators of who will benefit and who will not benefit. For example, if a patient is very young and has been very healthy before, we usually assume that this person has a higher likelihood of achieving a good outcome than someone who's very old and has a lot of comorbidities and a lot of co-medications. But knowing that these variables are associated with a certain outcome doesn't necessarily tell me the individual benefit. And this is what we want to improve with artificial intelligence. And actually, when we talk later about the research project we did, we, we saw that our gut feeling, even with lots of experience, is not always right. And do you think these predictions can be made about any type of stroke or are the models that you're looking at relevant to ischemic stroke only? Oh, you could do these predictions with all kinds of strokes, but we developed the models for ischemic stroke because we had to start somewhere. But this is obviously something that you can use for all kinds of strokes and diseases too. So the technology clearly has great potential for development. Now, your most recent findings involve a deep learning model, but you previously experimented with a machine learning model. How did your approach evolve? So this is actually, so deep learning is um, kind of a part or a way of doing machine learning. Machine learning is more general, whereas deep learning is, um, is machine learning that extracts complex features from raw data through progressive use of multiple layers. And this is inspired by our brain's neuronal network. So it's a more complex way of doing outcome prediction, but, but it's a kind of machine learning. And um, so we do this, we apply this um, algorithm in collaboration with data scientists who are very experienced with this technique. So me as a neurologist, I would probably not achieve very much myself. So I'm working with Professor Beate Sick from the University of Zurich and Lisa Herzog from the University of Zurich, who's now joined my group, and they have developed these algorithms. So, um, and, and the unique thing about it is actually, so if other people talk about machine learning, what they do is they look at the images, they extract something from the images that they see, for example, the size of the stroke. So you can see it, you can kind of draw a line around it, you can say this is a large stroke, this is a stroke of, let's say, 20 milliliter in volume, and you put the value 20 milliliter you put into your models for prediction. Deep learning is, is uh, advanced in that respect because it can take the whole image without you drawing anything into it or extracting anything out of it. The deep learning model itself learns 
to understand which features are important for outcomes. So you do not disturb this process. So this is something that the, the model does itself, which is a little bit always the criticism with a black box character of these algorithms. But of course, it's a much more data available, much more information that the model has, right? Because it, it has the full image information. Yeah. Oh, it's fascinating, Suzanne. So your most recent findings that you published in Stroke are really promising. Can you talk us through what you found? So what we did is actually we did a competition. We had our models that were recently developed with that deep learning algorithm compete against experienced stroke neurologists from different Swiss stroke centers. And the task was that the neurologists, so the raters and the model, had clinical data of patients available or they had imaging data available. And you must know that it was kind of a hard competition because the strokes, the patients that we looked at were all fairly similar and very acute. So they all had a so-called MCA M1 occlusion. So that's one of the large vessels of the brain. And uh, so very similar constellation. And they all came within roughly six to eight hours of symptom onset, and they were all deemed to be good candidates for thrombectomy. So let's say they all started at a similar situation with their stroke, right? They had very similar strokes. So we gave the raters all information that they usually have available um, on their data charts, such as age, sex, risk factors, prior medications, also how good were the collaterals deemed by the experts. Um, and how long did it take from onset of symptoms to imaging? And based on these clinical informations, this was given as a PDF, basically, based on these informations, we asked the raters to assign a modified ranking scale score after three months. So as I said, between zero and six. And to make the task not too difficult in the end, we just evaluated good versus bad outcomes. So anything MRS between zero to, to two and three and up. That's actually how we dichotomized it. All right, so we had this task. And the second task was that we added imaging of these patients, imaging that patients have when they arrive routinely. And the good thing is this was a data set from the Inselspital Bern. And they are unique in a way that they really achieved to do acute stroke MRI. And so they had very nice diffusion-weighted images, perfusion-weighted images available. So raters looked at the images and did the same task. They assigned rank and scale. And in the end, they did it with both sets, clinical and imaging. And the model basically did the same. And what we found that was very interesting was, first of all, the predictions of the raters were very inhomogeneous. So that it was really a wide variability of predictions. And if when we had Imaging data only, we did not perform well at all. So we had, let's say, usually go by and we make such so-called rock curves, area under the curve estimations that were about 0.6. So I usually translate it into you have a 60% chance of being right, but a 40% chance of being wrong in predicting favorable or unfavorable outcome after three months. So that's quite a big uncertainty if you think about it. 50-50 being chance, right? So, right. So if we had the imaging, we were really performing bad. If we had clinical information, we were a bit better between 0.6 and 0.7. And with clinical and imaging information, we reached about 0.7. But the, the nice thing was that the models, they did not perform much better when they had the clinical information, but when they had the imaging information, they outperformed the clinicians. So this really tells us that the models can detect things on imaging 
that we do not see or we see them, but we do not interpret them correctly. And this, I think, is the big potential of deep learning to have the full image and look at features that we, we may not be aware of. And what we are doing now is actually trying to make visible what the model looked at uh, on the images and also getting an idea of which parameters were important for the model. So this is nice to overcome this black box character of these models. It's such a positive finding that the models can help to analyze imaging data in this way. And as you say, so important to overcome the black box character of the models. Now, I wonder, how do you see neurologists managing stroke with AI support instead of relying on their experience alone? So definitely artificial intelligence algorithm need to be supporters of the neurologist. They will not be the neurologist, that's for sure. Um, and it's important that we understand how they were developed and that we understand how good they work and that we know they also have uncertainties. And this is why it's important to make the uncertainties and the features that are important for the models visible for the clinicians. So we know if we can rely on them or not. So definitely it's important not to, without criticism, just take whatever the model says and say, this is this is correct, but just use it to support our own decisions. And also I find it important to know that our decisions or our predictions are not always right. This is also a very important finding. What do you think are the next steps for the research in this area? What will you be working on next? So what we want to do is have the, we now improve the models to be able to also look at CT data because computer tomography is what most people have in acute stroke. So the Bernice data was MRI, but we need, we needed to work on CT data so that it's better applicable. Once we know that it works on CT data just as well as on MRI data, we want to develop like a prototype that we can test in our clinical routine if it's being used by the clinicians really improves their outcome predictions and their therapeutic decisions. So this needs to be tested prospectively. So given the amount of research that's still to be done, how far off do you think an AI tool is for neurologists who are managing stroke on a daily basis? So, I mean, we are already using other types of AI tools, for example, to making just images on MRI or CT. It already has a lot of AI embedded to make images nicer and contrasts better. So we are already using it, probably without many, without knowing. But this kind of tool, I think um, we are not that far away. I'd give it a few more years, but less than five, until we can show that it's really useful and that we can re that we can really apply it to stroke and also not just ischemic stroke, but maybe also to other conditions of the brain. Thank you, Suzanne. It's been absolutely fascinating to talk to you and to find out more about your research. And I wish you all the best for the future. Thank you. Thank you very much. This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals for their ongoing medical education and entertainment. It should not replace the professional advice of a doctor or pharmacist and may not be used as a basis for diagnosis or any change to the prescribed treatment of disease. The views expressed by our moderators and guests are their opinions and do not represent the position of any third parties. The information given in the podcast is subject to change as the scientific field and clinical advances progress.